0: Thank you Bishop Hans for the reading of that gospel. Would you all sit down? The text from that gospel reading, make up your minds not to prepare in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Make up your minds not to prepare in advance. Is this a message to the preacher? Uh, The hope that the Holy Spirit will give words. Make life a lot easier for preachers, I suppose. But um, Jesus, of course, is addressing believers who are going to be called before a court of law who are going to be arrested, who are going to be persecuted. And what he's saying is it's not the cleverness of their arguments which will count. It's the wisdom, the character of their lives, how they present themselves, which truly matters. It's whether the Holy Spirit is truly within them. Our candidates for baptism and confirmation today are being baptized and confirmed in a society where hostility to the Christian faith is more openly expressed than maybe for years past. And in its way, remember, it's no bad thing. The church grew in the age of the Acts of the Apostles when facing opposition, and not when it was simply neglected. When I think back to when I was ordained 35 years ago, religion and the life of faith didn't really receive much mention in the public square or in the media. The churches were looked upon more benignly, but considered rather irrelevant. I remember one desperate curate preaching a sermon in which he said, I would rather be called relevant than reverent. What desperation. I think things are different now. And I'll come back to uh, my text and our gospel reading a bit later in this address. But first I want to say one or two other things which are of importance on a day like this. Just uh, a few weeks ago I was pondering my memories of Bishop Richard Hare who died not very long ago. He was the Bishop of Pontefract for many years. And for a long time, he was the only bishop in the Church of England who was a noted charismatic, as likely to speak in tongues at a confirmation as to sing a hymn. And he would always begin a sermon at a confirmation in exactly the same way. And he would say, We're here to make whoopee! It might need translating for some of the younger people among us. Uh, It doesn't just refer to whoopee cushions, it's meant to be a great, great sense of spirit. I I was wondering, would he have said that on Remembrance Sunday? Uh, At one level, it seems quite odd, doesn't it, to have baptism and confirmation on such a sombre day. But... In some ways, as I've reflected on it, it's entirely right, because you can't remember without looking back. The nation's been looking back today, and that's important for us tonight. You can't be baptised or confirmed without looking back to God's hand, guiding the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land. You can't escape Looking back to the parting of the Red Sea and linking that with being baptized into the waters of Christ's death and rising to new life with him in triumph. The symbolism of baptism isn't just about the river Jordan and the baptism of Christ, it's about our whole history of salvation. And as we look back, we remember, we don't dismember history into a whole host of different parts we bring it all together so that it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, living in us, reshaping us for future service. And here, tonight, around the holy table, we will do this as he commands us, in remembrance of me. But baptism and confirmation propel us forward. Uh, The Christian life that's going to be lived by these young people is to be shaped by all that we're doing tonight. There's something else worth recalling on a day like this. Every war memorial in the country contains the names of those who have died, and in many, many places today, the names will have been read. We don't remember, in general, We remember those who've died on a day like this in particular. And names are important tonight. I've been talking a bit with the candidates beforehand about names. You cannot be baptised or confirmed without a name. God doesn't love his world in general. He doesn't love all of you in general. He loves every one of you in particular. So much so that it wouldn't matter if no one else ever existed. And your name, of course, is deeply linked with your identity, which is why you can change your name at baptism or confirmation, because you're taking on a new identity in Christ. And our names mean a lot to us. I vividly remember a a conversation around the meal table with our children when they were, I suppose, still quite young. And uh, the conversation was about what names they would have been called if they'd been born the other sex. And Dominic, who was uh, then aged about eight, was told he was going to be called Laura if he was a girl. Yuck, that's disgusting, he said. No, <laughs> Now, I, I, well, maybe Laura's here, I apologise to you. We thought it was a rather lovely name. Um, But it was an attack on his identity. Names matter. They did to Jesus. That's why he renamed Simon as Peter, the rock, since the rock of his confession was to be the foundation of the church. But for those of you who are parents, who are going to be parents, do be careful with names. I was talking with a young couple who just had their first child about three weeks ago who said the most difficult thing they had to do thus far in their marriage and in relation to the child was choose his name. I thought, well, they've got much greater difficulties to come, but there we are. Um, but it reminded me of an item. I love the news quiz on Radio 4. It shows how square I am. But there was, a, there was an item about a family called Day, who brought their child to baptism. And he was called Michael Alexander Zippity-Dooda Day. (laughs) And his mother said she would really have liked to call him Sunny Day, but people would have laughed. (laughs) Anyway, you can't make it up. Um, So let's return to our scriptures, especially to our our gospel reading tonight, which of course begins with um, Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. Some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, and he said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. That was, remember that was Herod's temple. I mean, Herod really built it to the glory of Herod rather than to the glory of Almighty God. But Jesus always regarded Herod's temple as the temple of God, the house of God. There might have been all sorts of other motives in its building, in its creation, just as there have been in Christian churches down the ages. But the Lord himself believed in sacred spaces set aside for prayer and worship but he predicted its destruction. And he predicted that its destruction would lead to all sorts of false claims about the end times. Beware, he says to his followers, beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. Remember that, those of you being baptized and confirmed tonight. You will come across many who will say, in Jesus' name, I am he. The time is near. Many of the sects and religious teachers who claim to have a monopoly of the truth, to know precisely what God's will is for the world and that they know it, do not go after them. That's because we are called for whatever reason, and we don't know why, we're called to live in this in-between time, we're still in it, between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and his coming again. That's the world in which we live. We're poised between the resurrection and Christ's fulfillment of his work. And Jesus predicts wars and earthquakes and famines, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, we know that. That's been true in every age. But we are not to be terrified. The end will not follow immediately. The end will not follow immediately. And because we're living in this interim time, At the end of the Eucharistic prayer around the Lord's table, we often say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The fulfillment of all things in Christ hasn't yet happened. And in the meantime, by your endurance you will gain your souls. And of course it's still true for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ that they're brought before kings and governors because of the name of Jesus Christ whom they follow. It's still true for many Christians in the world that their lives are on line for their faith. You think two weeks ago tonight of the 50 or more Christians who were worshipping in Baghdad as you are, who were killed as they worshipped. Christians in Iraq Risk their very lives doing what we are doing tonight. So pray for them and give thanks for the extraordinary freedom you possess and I possess. We don't live our Christian lives so precariously, but we are tested nonetheless. How do we answer those who claim there's no evidence? For the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hear it time and again. How do we answer those who point to the sins and failures of Christian people and the church down the ages as evidence that this faith that we hold doesn't transform lives? What do we say to those who say that science has displaced God and that our universe explains itself? There's a huge intellectual and theological task to be done. I mean, no doubt about that. But no bishop can do it in a minute or two in a sermon. But what I also know is that faith in Jesus Christ for those being baptised tonight doesn't lie only in their heads. The Christian faith is a religion of the heart. It was John Wesley's heart, remember, which was strangely warmed on the night of his conversion. Wisdom and grace in Christian lives speaks more powerfully than intellectual arguments. I think very few of us have been argued into faith. We find God entering our hearts before he reshapes our minds. On the Pope's uh, recent visit to this country, I was delighted to read that he met a family who had an impact on me a couple of years ago and about whom I'd heard nothing since. Some of you may remember the incident. He met a family called Mizzen, You might recall that a couple of years ago, Jimmy Mizzen, then aged 16, was murdered in a local shop in his South London suburb. He'd gone with his brother to buy some lunch at the local bakery, and he was threatened for no reason. He refused to fight, and he was killed by a broken bottle. And Jimmy was a Catholic who served at Mass in his local church. And instinctively, he followed the teaching of the Lord of the Eucharist. He'd absorbed what it meant to love your enemies. He didn't fight, so he lost his life. But what impressed me and what I've never forgotten was the reaction of Jimmy's mother. She didn't demand summary punishment for the killer. She didn't say she could have no rest until he'd been hunted down and convicted. No, she said there's too much hate, anger and bitterness in the world and she and Jimmy's family were not going to add to it. She actually said she felt sorry for the parents and family of the young man who killed Jimmy. They've got to live with what's gone wrong with him. We can cherish the memory of a wonderful son. It didn't make front page headlines. But it was full of the wisdom and grace of Christ. What a difference that would make to a society which grows angrier by the day and where revenge is often thought to be justice. Somehow our public life is now so shot through with resentment and conflict, we can't always hear good news. And that's why we need the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit whom we invoke in these sacraments tonight. But there's something else to remember about that story. The Mizzen family discovered the transforming power of the gospel in human life in their ordinary, their very ordinary local church. Sometimes we look at the disordered state of our world and we think that uh, what we get up to in church seems rather trivial or small scale, doesn't have much impact. Don't believe it. Your worship can and should be transformative. And even that poorly attended Bible study, that uh, youth group that's struggling, that mother and toddler club that's difficult to sustain, they're the places where the gospel can be heard, where God's Spirit can be received just as much as it is in the mega church with the great celebrity speaker. The success of the church... Isn't measured in numbers, but in transformed lives, in God finding a language to speak to each of us through His Holy Spirit. And be sure that God will find a language for you and for me. I've always loved, and you may have heard it, that old, very old story about a young Welsh girl who came to work for a family in London, a sort of au pair in the days before they'd invented the term. And uh, she travelled across London each Sunday to the Welsh church, still there, to worship because her family only spoke Welsh at home and she loved to speak her language. And she was soon greatly appreciated by the family for whom she worked and they went to their local church and one day... They invited her to join them. It would save her a really long journey on a Sunday. No, she said, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather worship God in the language I love. Her employer said, gently, I think. Jesus wasn't a Welshman, you know. <laughs> no, she said, I know, but it's in Welsh he speaks to me. find the language in which Jesus speaks to you. There are all sorts of languages. There's the language of the scriptures, there's the language of the sacraments, there's the language of music. Most of all, there's the language of other people's Christian lives, their wisdom, their character. And I hope and pray that those being baptised and confirmed tonight will hear Jesus for the rest of their lives speaking to them in a language they know. The waters of baptism will flow over them tonight and through the laying on of hands with prayer the Holy Spirit will be confirmed within them. Pray for them. Pray for yourselves. Pray for me. In the name of that same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.